Denise Guest used to fly F-15s and F-22s and taught people how to fight from the air. And now he's taking those lessons and applying them elsewhere. He's got some great stuff. We've got Robert Cujo Teschner on the Manlyhood Mancast. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Manlyhood Mancast. I'm your host, Josh Hatcher, and I am so thankful that you're tuning in with us today. Listen, if you're a man that wants to level up, that wants to become a better man, then you need to connect with the Arrows and Iron Brotherhood. Go to manlyhood.com slash brotherhood, and let's get you into a place where you can connect with other men, where you can grow, you can become a better husband, a better father, a better leader where you can set goals and have someone help hold you accountable to those goals and help you reach those goals, where you're going to get some coaching, accountability, and really brotherhood. You want it? I know you need it. So go to manlyhood.com slash brotherhood for more. Today's interview really is a fantastic interview. You know, when you watch the movie Top Gun or when you watch anything really about uh, fighter pilots, you see... The excitement, right? What you don't see is what they do after they land. They land the plane, and then they talk about their mission. And they work together to build a team that wants them to succeed. So today's guest took those principles, and now he applies it to high-performance businesses and life. And so there's so much we can learn from today's guest, Robert Cujo Teschner. Robert Teschner, it is great to have you on the podcast today. I have uh, been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Yeah, thank you very much, Josh. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. And I, too, have been looking forward to our conversation for a while. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, now I know you've got a nickname. That nickname is is Cujo. Uh, where Where is that coming from, man? Yeah, so um, I was uh, blessed in my life to be able to live my dream, my boyhood dream. I got a chance to be a fighter pilot, and one of the things, one of the sort of recent rituals, uh, post-Vietnam, prior to Desert Storm, especially in an Air Force fighter squadron, is the call sign ceremony. So uh, ultimately, your tribe decides who you are. About six months into your first operational assignment is where the team gets together. They tell stories about you all night long. They come up with potential call signs based upon those stories. They take a vote, and at the end of the night, that's who you become for the rest of your life. And uh, it sounds like a trite little thing, but it's actually a really meaningful tradition when it's done correctly. It can really affect somebody in a positive way. For me, when my when the people that I looked up to, the people who were living the dream that I've had since I was four years old, made me a fully vested member of their community and named me Cujo, I was on cloud nine and I've never come off of it. And until the day that I die, I prefer to be known as Cujo, which my mother never fully understood. <laughs> but uh, but there we are. She's like, why do they call you that demon dog? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, but I explained, uh, Mom, that's just how it is. And I prefer to be known as Cujo. So it's actually like I love hearing the story of 
the call sign ceremony and kind of that that process because you know I I think in a lot of tribes of men there is a little bit of an initiation with a nickname you know and uh, you know when I was in college they called me slick but it wasn't because I was slick it was because I wasn't (laughs) (laughs) yeah my wife fell in love. My wife fell in love with me before she knew my name was Josh. So, <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Look, and that's but see, that's that's part yeah. of what's fun about it. You know, you know, I did not tell you any of the stories that were told at my naming. I'm not allowed to actually in the F15 community. We're not allowed to share the stories that that are told at that at that mm-hmm. ceremony. Um, and so there's a mystery associated with it. Everybody that was there, though, they know. And that's what that's another element that makes it fun. And so those people that were at the naming, we created a little mini bond in that moment as we told stories about the newest member of the tribe, and that that actually connected us. There's something to that connection piece, which uh, which I think is really important. And you know, you look back on, in my case, I look back on that that phase of my life. You look back on um, your community, your tribe in college, and and there's something special about that. You miss that when you don't have it. Uh, I certainly miss being part of that tribe. Yeah, that's awesome. And and I think it's important for men to have it, you know, because we're looking for that affirmation from our brothers and our fathers, you know, and father figures and, and authorities mm-hmm. as well. When someone can uh, bestow that upon you, I think it has a lot to do with your, uh, your understanding of yourself, you know? Absolutely. I mean, so much so. I've seen where Air Force four-star generals use their call sign dot last name as their official email address. It becomes so ingrained in who they are, you know, even from a branding standpoint. I mean, people remember Cujo. It's kind of sort of almost hard not to they'll forget Robert Teshner, but they'll remember Cujo, you know? And so, yeah, it is a, it is kind of a special thing. It's a unique thing. And, uh, I think it's one worth embracing. There is power to ritual. Ritual done well can drive bonds and connections. I actually had your uh, interview on my Google calendar, which I share with my wife so that we can sync, sync up. And, and she was like, who's Cujo? (laughs) (laughs) So from a branding standpoint, it caught, it caught her attention, right? Okay, good. So, okay. Here's another crazy question. Definitely want to hear uh, about your experiences or what you can tell me of your experiences in the Air Force and as a fighter pilot. Um, but the dying question, right, that's the wrong word. The question that we're all dying to know is how realistic is the Top Gun movie? Yeah. Okay. So uh, how realistic? It depends on It depends on how you view the world. I mean, there are, there are some people who tell me, fighter pilots, they can't watch the original Top Gun and that the the new one, you know, was a step up, but still not good enough. Like, it's not realistic enough. My question and response is, how do you anticipate being able to capture what happens in three dimensions and over great distances on a two-dimensional screen for an audience that's never experienced it and and can't? And, And I think... One of the coolest things about the first one was was that it captured enough of the essence of what's happening up there to inspire an entire generation of people to be fired up about um, about flying fighters. I mean, lots of people joined the Navy as a result of, of that first movie. I, as a young kid, saw it and reaffirmed that this is what I want to do with my life. And I actually saw that movie 
uh, twice back to back, once uh, in a German movie theater with a bunch of, um, of German friends. And then the second time was at Spangdalem Air Base in Germany with a bunch of fighter pilots. And I must say the second time was much more exciting for me because at the end of the movie, a theater full of Air Force fighter pilots stood up and yelled. And it was a yell of enthusiasm. And they were so fired up. They're showing all the, you know, the pictures of the characters. And, and I mean, and then the two F-14s taken off into the sunset. They just lost their minds in a good way. And it fired me up. So was it realistic enough to inspire them? Yeah. And did it inspire a world? Yeah. And so in the second one, man, they really did a fantastic job of showing the stresses on the body and what it mm -hmm. takes to go out there and execute and how demanding it is to do so zipping through valleys and, you know, pulling G's and all the rest of the stuff. And, and what really moved me was my wife grabbing onto my arm as we were sitting there watching it and she's clutching my arm. She's like, is that what it's like? I mean, you know what? Yeah. Close enough for government work. That's what it's like. And that's, that, that's the closest you'll get to experiencing what it is. that's up there. And what a, what a cool thing. And then my two oldest boys, they had the same takeaway. They're, they're motivated by this. So, I'm not worried about the small things that are off. I thought it was, in fact, I think Top Gun Maverick is a fantastic movie. That's awesome. I, yeah, I think about it and I'm like picturing Tom Cruise at his age hopping in a, in a fighter, fighter jet. Is it like riding a bike or is it, you know, if you were to hop in after all these years, would you still have, uh, still have the chops to, to fly the thing? Uh, great question. So when I was flying F-15s, and I've flown two major weapon systems, the F-15C model, which is the air-to-air -air version of the Eagle, and then the F-22, which is uh, an air dominance fighter. It, it has the ability to drop um, air-to-ground weapons as well. Uh, when I was flying F-15Cs as a weapon school instructor, so I used to, a similar story to Maverick, um, I taught at the weapon school that I graduated from. Um, when I was there, took a, to get married, took 12, 11 days off. My wife and I went on our honeymoon. Uh, on the 12th day, I came back to uh, to fly a mission. And um, here it is, I'm at the height of my capabilities. I am on top of my game and I felt rusty. After 11 days out of the cockpit, felt a little bit rusty, had to be a little more intentional about doing the basics correctly because I was a little bit out. Whereas in an airplane like the F-22, you can be gone for much longer than that and still operate extremely well because you've got so many things going for you, uh, all kinds of capabilities that are fused and merged together in an airplane that's designed to be difficult to see and so that you can actually come back into that, not necessarily be on your A-game and still do shockingly well. The, the Probably the biggest issue is dealing with the G-forces. You know, I mean, if you're going to come in there and start and start merging with another airplane. Me having been out of the cockpit for just a few years now, <laughs> I may not be on the top of my physical performance there, and that could be a that could be an issue. Yeah, that's crazy. I so when I was a, a kid in high school, my buddy had his pilot's license before he had his driver's license, and we'd go up and we'd rent a like a Piper tomahawk or whatever and, and and fly it you know an hour away and get a hamburger and fly back and uh you know that was a fun experience but i can't imagine the speed <laughs> of one of those one of those fighters like that's just beyond me to even imagine and the, the stresses and the, the forces on your body for that 
And that's the thing, like, you know, like hopping in an airplane now and flying from point A to point B, piece of cake. Not even worried about it. All of those, all of the things that you do to do that safely and to, to talk to air traffic control and all that easy to do, uh, visual flight rules, even easier to do. But it's the, it's the fact that when you merge with another airplane in fighter combat, the speeds that you're doing so at are insane. And the fact that you can go from, you know, one to nine Gs in an instant and the stresses on the body, the fact that the blood flow, I mean, you, you, your brain is absent blood. The blood is actually going to your hands and feet. You got to fight to stay away. This while you're looking over both of your shoulders at the, at the person that you're fighting against. So you're contorting your body, your spine, under the force of gravity, moving your head back, which is the heaviest part of your body, to see the person that's behind. I mean, those are the kinds of things that that leaves a lasting mark. I don't know of many people that have been in that kind of a lifestyle who who now are pain free, who, who say, "Oh yeah, you know, everything's everything's rocking and rolling." I mean, it hurts. It is a it is a punishing experience. Which again, if you go back to Top Gun Maverick. You, you get to see that you get to see the person G lock. You get to see, you know, how the face contorts the you know the the skin pushed back uh, as the body is dealing with the stressors. That's that's the really hard part. And then making high quality decisions in those circumstances and working with your team um, to prosecute the attack the right way. Um, huge challenge, also incredibly fun. And if you can do that well, that's incredibly satisfying. So what did the process look like? Because when when you're explaining it and you're talking about it, you know, you're on this side of it. I imagine somebody that gets all excited when they watch the Top Gun movie and then they go sign up, right? Not everybody's going to make that cut. Like, it sounds like you've got to be somebody who can can perform at that level. So what, what does that process look like? Yeah, so I'll answer that two ways, if I may, Josh. There's the process, but there's also, like, what's what's driving What's driving things? And I, I used to back in the F-15 where we had a, you know, we had a couple of two-seat airplanes for training purposes. Every now and again, uh, somebody would win an award and get an incentive flight. You know, typically the maintainer of the year uh, would get an opportunity to ride in the back seat of an F-15, or somebody that that did something extraordinary to help the community gets a chance to go fly in the back seat. You couldn't tell Josh going into it who was going to have a good day and a bad day. I've flown with people that were incredibly physically fit that had the physique that would suggest, oh, they're going to, they're going to dominate in it at six or seven G's. They're vomiting and, and saying, I'm done. I've, I've had, I've had it where probably the, the, the most amazing physical specimen to sit in the back seat at the end of the flight had to be lifted out of the back seat uh, by two other people uh, to be able to get out and went straight to the, <laughs> to the ER for some, uh, for some IV fluids. Whereas I've flown with somebody who you would have thought going in would snap in half at the first hint of a couple of G's. And this person is in the back saying, Hey, can we go to nine again? That was awesome. And you know, here it is. I'm getting exhausted. <laughs> so, so that piece, you, you almost can't forecast who's, who's going to do well with the process to, to become a fighter pilot is, uh, is pretty simply explained as get a pilot slot, go to pilot training, be lucky enough to where there's some fighters in your drop and do well enough to be able to qualify for them. Go through the introduction to fighter fundamentals course. So that pilot training plus the introduction to fighter fundamentals, that's about 15, 16 months worth of training. 
and then and then successfully complete six months of F-16, A-10, F-15, F-15E, F-22, whatever the F-35, uh, F-18, whatever your, your platform is, um, training event. And the process is pretty cut and dry. Who makes it through? Uh, it's somebody who is passionate about overcoming all the obstacles along the way. It's not an easy journey. I mean, nobody just skates through it. Nobody sits there and, and dominates every mission and is, you know, walking on water in, in any, everybody has their great days and their horrible days. And what separates those um, who are successful from those who aren't are those who have an inner passion and a drive to overcome the challenges and to keep on pressing. I mean, it, and so many examples of, it was a hard journey to get there worth doing. I believed in myself along the way to, to, to make it happen. Yeah. I, uh, I can't imagine that, you know, I, I imagine that there's a lot of class work, book work, school work, just to get to the place where they, they know you enough or you know enough and they trust you enough to put you, <laughs> you know, even behind the, the, it's not a wheel, I guess a stick of that thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there's, there's definitely classwork in, in pilot training where you're learning the basics of, you know, how takeoffs and landing and weather and instruments and, and systems and all that. There's, there's a lot of book work. Um, but where you start to see who it is that's going to be geared for fighter aviation, it's when you get into formation phase, um, you know, those who are comfortable staying three feet away from another airplane through a bunch of different maneuvers, you know, with four different airplanes doing these kinds of things. Yeah, they're, they're potentially going to do okay uh, in the fighter business. Those who can successfully stay within certain parameters flying uh, around another airplane, they're probably going to do pretty well. Um, and, and all the way through, you're jam-packed with knowledge, yes. But the, the knowledge piece isn't as interesting as, as how well you're able to maneuver in relationship to other airplanes. Some people just just don't want to do it. I had, a, I had an instructor in pilot training. He usually, during the formation phase, would take vacation because he really didn't enjoy being that close to other airplanes. And that was okay. That's fine, I suppose. Uh, whereas there were those who, who thought that was, that was super fun. It's scary stuff, but really rewarding and fun stuff to do. So you kind of get a sense for you know, who's also cut out for it. But, but even there, if you've got the drive and the passion, you can learn all of this stuff. So tell me about when you were, you know, in the job, working the job, were there moments where your life was in danger when you were, when you were flying? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, plenty of experiences. Um, I remember one night we were getting ready to uh, to push into harm's way, but we're still in we're still in friendly territory, and we're doing a um, a nighttime pre-mission refueling um, to make sure that the tanks are all full before we go uh, into harm's way. And we're in the <laughs> we're in the clouds as a four ship on the tanker, so we're flying formation off of the tanker's wing. The turbulence was moderate. So, I mean, the airplane is bouncing all over the place. And the airplane is 
it's loaded to the hilt with extra external fuel tanks and all the missiles. And so it just doesn't fly the way that you're used to training. You, you don't typically fly that way when you're doing training missions. And now the airplane, it just doesn't fly the same way. And we're bouncing around. We've got to get gas. And, and the funny thing about being in the weather at night is that you have no horizon and you have no way of referencing which way is up aside from your instruments. And so everything's okay right up until you get into formation position on the tanker and you start to fly off of the tanker as opposed to your instruments. And so you're, you have to stay within a, a very tight window in order for uh, everything to work. And, and what we're talking about here is on an Air Force fighter aircraft, you've got a, a boom that's coming out of the tanker, a piece of metal that's going to push high-pressure gas into a receptacle someplace behind your cockpit. That boom is flown by a teenager who's typically on their, on their stomach using joysticks to fly this mechanical piece to this receptacle someplace behind your cockpit. They're bouncing, but they're also looking backwards as they're bouncing, flying this thing into formation. You're looking forward, bouncing, you know. And by the way, as an aside, every time that, you know, the captain of whatever airline uh, says, you know, we're going to put the pass and seatbelt sign on, we're anticipating, you know, some bumps along the way, I kind of chuckle. Uh, because I remember that night, everything was was rattling to to high heaven and and then the tanker goes into a slight turn because the tanker has to stay within a certain orbit for for all of the things that we're doing to torque on so in that moment of the slight turn the brain which doesn't have a horizon reference loses track of which way is up and even though the instruments down here are saying which way is up you're actually looking over here at the airplane to stay in formation position on it so you don't have that and your brain starts to tumble. And so now my brain's telling me that we're in some sort of a funky, you know, loop or that we're accelerating towards the ground, whatever it is that it decides that you're, you're actually not doing, it's telling you that you're doing it while you're bouncing and you're getting all this fuel. And then that evening, um, had these weird funky streaks of electric light going past the canopy. And it was a, it was a very bizarre phenomenon, but that phenomenon causes you to think, wait a second, it feels like you're the Millennium Falcon or, you know, you're some Star Trek vehicle going through hyperspace. And, and uh, that combination of events, you know, causes you to, to sweat just a little bit. So now you got tons of sweat coming down, but you got the death grip on the throttles and sticks that so you're barely able to see because of all the sweat in your eyes as you're bouncing at night, brain tumbling. Those are the kinds of things that give you a moment of pause. Um, there's another time where, where I'm flying against uh, I'm flying against an opponent. We're simulating that we've just picked each other up about five miles away from each other, and so we're racing towards one another. Uh, the ambition of this particular profile is we're gonna we're gonna merge, we're gonna pass each other, and in that merge, determine whether or not we're friend or foe. In other words, we cannot shoot each other until we've we've passed, and that's a high stakes, high G uh, fight. Um, to get into a weapons employment zone to be able to to win that particular fight. Anyway, we're five miles away. Um, we're scooting at one another and closing velocity well over 1,000 miles, 1,500 miles an hour. Uh, we're supposed to, to pass no closer than 500 feet from one another. But that day, every time that I, I turned a little bit to get some turning space, uh, my opponent mimicked me. And so you've only got time based upon your posing velocities and where we're starting from, to have a couple of these things before you merge. And basically, he, he, he ends up pointing at me the entire time to where we 
end up passing about two to three feet away from each other. 100% convinced that we were going to hit each other. As he goes by, time slows down. I can count each individual rivet underneath his airplane. I anticipate that, that not only is he either going to hit me directly, like face-to-face, -face, or he's going to shave off my tails, but either way, it's going to be a bad ending. And when at the end, we just barely end up uh, passing one another, his, his engines, which are in full afterburner, go past me. I'm worried that he's going to melt my canopy. Those are the funky things that happen from time to time in that world. The key is, in the case of the near miss, the first thing that we went back to do is to go to learn why did that happen so that we could prevent it from ever happening again. And one of the things that I take away from, from that lifestyle is, was that the mission was never done until we learned from it. So if it was a success, we still learned why did we succeed today so that we could go back and replicate that success. In the case of the near miss, um, why did we almost hit one another today so that we could never make that mistake again? Uh, and it was, a, it was a great outlook. Which actually, sorry, I was it, say, it, it was actually just, brings it was, us to the work that you're doing today. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, ultimately, this concept of we've got a mission out there to perform, but the mission is not over until we've learned from it. And the ambition of learning from it isn't, isn't punitive in nature. It is always to go out there and make the next mission better. That's a philosophy that applies in every walk of life. No matter what it is that you do, the ambition ought to be, I think, to improve at it. Whether it's to improve it, how it is that you're a father or a husband, whether it's to improve how it is that you do the work that you do that, you know, that fuels the family. However you look at life, whatever, wherever it is you're making your impact, uh, the ambition to learn from the experiences to make tomorrow better than today, I think is a worthy, is a worthy ambition. And that's something that a fighter squadron is really, really good at doing. So they go back after the mission and then evaluate and make adjustments and, and then apply that to their next mission. That's right. But in a, in a way that's centered around coaching and teaching, learning and growing, not, hey, here's how, here's how bad you screwed up. Don't ever screw up again this way. Um, I, I was actually on, an, on, a, on another podcast earlier today. We were talking about feedback and and I'm kind of on a push against it. I feel like right now we live in a world where it's so easy to be critical, like constantly, and it's drummed into us in a professional sitting. You know, constructive criticism, that's the way to go. That's how we're going to improve our team. I don't think that's the case. I think in a world where there are options for people to go elsewhere, in a world where there's so much fear and uncertainty, especially going through the experiences of the last couple of years, Leading with fear, motivating people by telling them how much they suck is actually a demotivating principle that's going to cause them to, to up and leave. But it's so easy to do. I mean, I can, you can come in here right now, just based off of what it is that I've shared with you on this podcast and criticize the heck out of me. Because you shouldn't have said it this way. This, was, this took too long. Your lighting is bad. Your, your microphone is poor. Whatever. You can talk about all these negatives. And, and maybe all of those negatives are true. The question is, how do you inspire me to become better? Is it by pointing out the flaws or deficiencies, or is it by highlighting how many good things have taken place, how much of a positive impact we've already made in the things that we've talked about? And then adding to it, you know, based upon a preset standard, did you meet it or not? It could be that we met it, but here's a couple of techniques for how to 
even surpass it the next time around. And maybe we agree to have an even higher standard the next time around because we're guess what? We're capable of doing even better. You know, the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is how do we motivate our teammates to be their very best? And how are we complicit in keeping them from becoming their best? So the fighter squadron's ambition is, is to make the next mission better than tomorrow, always through coaching, highlighting how close to success we've come when we didn't win and what one or two steps we, we could have taken that would have made today a victory. And when we do win, celebrating it and accurately identifying, Josh, the reason why we had a successful mission today is because you did your job. Keep on doing your job, brother. You're awesome. I've been a part of organizations where they, maybe they read uh, Jocko Willink's book, Extreme Ownership, and then they apply something like the OODA loop or whatever, which is a great concept and similar concept. But what often ends up happening is it becomes uh, about making sure that everybody underneath you has extreme ownership rather than taking extreme ownership at the upper levels. Um, and so it, it, and if you're not careful with that culture, it can be so become such a critical, uh, a critical attack at the things that are done. And, and in those organizations, what made it better was to say, guess what guys, we're not going to do our evaluations this way anymore. And I think it has helped, but yeah, I, I can see where if the culture is right, the culture of that organization is right. It makes a big difference to be able to say, you know, not just about pulling it apart, but how can we improve? Because all of us are on board with being better. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Jocko and extreme ownership, uh, and then talk about how the way that it's actually practices is that you beneath me can practice extreme ownership at your level, which is counter to what, what Jocko is preaching and is counter to how it is that we apply it. It's actually counter to how it is that I learned as a young fighter pilot. What I saw was flight leads, who had much more experienced credibility standing than I had coming in after a mission where I led to mission failure. And they said, I own this. I needed to have led you better today. They empathized with me. They're like, Cujo, you, you've done how many of these missions? Five. Okay. You, you're actually doing really well for where you are at this stage of the game in, on your fifth mission to have done this, this, and this correctly. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, we may not have achieved overarching mission success, but you're exactly on track to become a superstar. So they had empathy. They also had a lot of humility. I mean, in our debriefs where we go to learn, free from pride and ego, folks were able to admit to the fact that they had made a mistake. Failure wasn't a bad word for us. We always saw it as an opportunity to learn, and, and that was a cool thing. And so it's, it's, it's unfortunate that people are misapplying Jocko's, Jocko's teachings. And I think his TEDx talk at the University of Nevada is a brilliant one. In 13 minutes, he talks about a horrific event, a fratricide, and how he is the overall commander, says, I own our outcomes. I mean, it's a, that's a difficult thing to do in today's world. But if you want to build the bonds of trust, if you want to lead a group of people that will follow you to the gates of hell, do what he did. Hmm. You know, and that's the, the challenge oftentimes is you might hear an inspirational talk. You might read a pretty interesting book, but how it's applied really matters. And it, it, it can easily get off the rails if, if somebody's not alongside. You know, it would be great if Jocko had been there in those companies that you mentioned to also coach them actively on mm -hmm. how they're applying his principles. Because they're sound. Mm -hmm. 
They're yeah. I, I agree that the principles are sound for sure. I just know, like I said, I think sometimes, well, and, and if I, if I translate it to a lot of times, the people that are trying to apply them have never been in the military. And so they're, it's almost like a, um, the principle applies whether or not you're in the military, but I think there was almost like this, I can be cool like that. <laughs> and, and, you know, when Jocko comes down hard on somebody, you know, uh, it's because he's coming down hard on himself too, you know, and he's taking that ownership and that's where things, things work. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work if you're, you know, if I'm in charge of something, if I'm leading something, the people underneath me are the ones that, you know, like what their success is, is my success and my success is their success. And it's the same with failure. That's right. And I think that's really what has to happen is that, that team mindset. And it sounds like, you know, that, that fighter squadron is, is operating in, in almost like a, um, like a higher level of it, you know, and I think it's because you've built that brotherhood in, in the process. There's no doubt. In fact, um, it's, it's, it's brilliant that you say that. I do think that a fighter squadron has got this thing down to a uh, to an art and science together in a in a very very special way that reinforces the goodness. So, like once you get that ball rolling and you really get into that rhythm, it becomes a force that you almost can't stop in a good way. And it's it's one of the it's one of the blessings of that community. Uh, so much so that oh gosh, it was just a few weeks ago now. A group of us from one of the squadrons that I was privileged to be in. Uh, we had a reunion. There was no reason to have had this reunion. Uh, there was no special event that we were commemorating. There was no, um, you know, forthcoming loss of a critical member or some, some sort of, you know, thing that we were like worried about. We just all acknowledge it's been far too long since we've hung out together and everybody went out of their way at a time when nobody had the time to do so, to get together, just to be there around one another. And when we got back together, it was as if we had just left each other yesterday. And the bonds of cohesion actually expanded across to even new entries, like new spouses or, you know, folks that weren't necessarily part of the community back then felt like they were part of something special. I actually voiced how much they wished that they had been part of it back when we were all doing this on a regular basis because, because this is a special thing and you, and you miss that, you know? And I think if you get to the point where you're able to, in, in any organization, family, sports team, religious team, uh, business team, wh- wherever it is that you're you're hanging out, if you can be at the point where you're actually rewarded for not necessarily hitting the mark, being vulnerable enough to be able to talk about why you didn't, then you're in rarefied air. You've achieved something special. And I think I think there's a lot that we can take away from high performance team world, understanding the culture that underpins the process, one that demands, one that demands that we're honest and honest means being vulnerable, um, as well as humble, as well as empathetic, as we dissect what it is that we are here to learn from uh, on the heels of, of failures and victories. How do you build that kind of team in uh, a place where all of your decisions aren't necessarily life or death, <laughs> you know, or the success or failure of an entire nation, which is what it is kind of when you look at it the other way. So how do I, how do you build that kind of culture in? Uh, yeah, it's funny. And I get that question a lot, actually, you know, in your previous life, who it was life or death, but it's not that way here. I mean, I, 
be careful what I say here. Dear friends of ours, uh, early on in the pandemic, went through like a near-death experience. Um, the breadwinner was let go from the company where he'd been employed for a quarter century. Um, if everything had, had, had happened, like if he had been let go during normal circumstances, he had a golden parachute, huge, um, huge paycheck for all of the service. But because he was let go at a time of a national crisis, national emergency, he got two weeks of pay and benefit and then everything went away. And his, and he's, you know, got multiple kids in high school, mortgage, uh, you know, the kinds of things that you have at that stage of your life, all of that stuff is ripped away almost overnight. You tell me that that's not life or death. And you think about the fact that in the business team setting, there's no guarantee that the company continues on. In the business team setting, we've got a rapidly changing world. We've got competitors that are trying to become more nimble than us always. Uh, you've got employees that can leave on the drop of a hat, and that significantly changes the dynamic of the team. I mean, it's a it's a dog eat dog world out there. In some in some ways, more demanding or dangerous than in the military, uh, and I mean that sincerely. And so. How do you get there? You recognize that that you're in this thing together to win. You also recognize that no matter what it is that you do, you're deriving personal meaning and value from the work that you're doing, and you're also making a positive impact, assuming what you're doing isn't some nefarious uh, enterprise that's illegal and is going to you know, wind up sending people to jail. I mean, if we're talking about uh, you know good people doing good things, uh, every small business at a minimum, is doing this, contributing to our national economy. And we need a strong economy in order to be a strong nation, right? So, so everybody's contributing. Uh, and we, could, we can feel the absence of that contribution and what it is we no longer have. I mean, how many restaurants have closed as a result of the pandemic? And that affects people. The rhythm of life is affected. How many things are more inconvenient now than they used to be because people aren't coming to work any longer? That interrupts the fabric of life. So. So anyway, long-winded way of saying, I think you establish what it is that we had in the high performance and still have in the high performance military team world by being really intentional about figuring out, hey, what is our purpose here? And so many business teams haven't figured that out. So many families actually haven't taken the time to sit down and go, hey, what, what is our purpose? And ultimately, what is the meaning and the impact of what it is that we're doing? And once we've arrived at that conclusion, once we've answered that really critical question, now suddenly we have clarity on why it matters to try to learn, to grow, to improve. And with that clarity comes the ability then to potentially live a little bit differently. I have mentioned now probably three or four times the centrality of being vulnerable. If we want to learn from mistakes, we have to be vulnerable enough to admit that they took place in the, in the first place. And if we want to lead teammates, into a, hey, I need you to be vulnerable. Well, guess who needs to be vulnerable first? Not the teammate, the leader. And so it's a, it's a mission critical element that the leader leads the way that he or she is hoping that their teammates might follow. That's a necessary precondition to all of the rest. If you want, to, if you want your teammates to be empathetic towards one another, be empathetic towards them. If you want them to, to manifest humility, you've got to be humble. Um, and if you want them to take ownership, the very first person on the team that needs to take ownership is the team leader.
And accountability goes up the chain of command, not down. In any organization, no matter what it is that they do. Yeah, I think that's powerful. And I think that's something that, I mean, even down to the family level, you know, when, when you're leading your family and recognizing, you know, are you setting your children up for success or are you setting them up for failure? And, you know, like, like they failed and now they feel I have failed and I have to recognize as a dad, did I set them up for success or failure? That's on me sometimes, you know, and now at the same time, it's also important that they do fail sometimes. And then we can learn from it. Like I I'm taking this stuff that you're giving me right now, dude. And I'm like, I can see this applying in so many different places. Yeah. And, and Josh, if I, if I may, I want to share with you, um, I had an experience once, uh, where somebody that I worked with felt that they had been wronged, uh, because I picked somebody else, uh, to take a position and they ultimately they said, Hey, I've been here longer. You know, I should, I should therefore get it. And I asked myself, why would somebody feel that if I've been here longer than therefore I deserve to be in this position? And I realized that that maybe we set them up a little bit for failure. If, if everybody wins only based upon the amount of time that they've been in an organization and it's not based upon merit, not based upon, you know, who's demonstrated the, the effort or the aptitude, then that maybe we've, we've set them up to, to fail in that instance. And I didn't, I didn't see it as a, a bad reflection on the individual. I said, I think this is an outcome of a bad, of a bad system. And one of the takeaways that I've had from that is, is that I've told my, children's coaches, we've got five little kiddos from 17 down to five. Uh, in each case, I've said, coach, when my child does not pass muster, bench him. And if my child doesn't deserve to be on this team, kick him off. I want them to fail now. I want us to learn how to do that. I want us to be able to fail well together because resilience and the ability to bounce back after a failure is even, is even more important than success. I don't know of nobody that has had nothing but success their entire life. In fact, I fear for those few that might have come close to that because at some point they're going to have an epic fall and that's going to be a really tough thing to bounce back from because they've never done it before and to learn it late in life is really hard. And so for us, it's the, and, and it's funny because you have that conversation with the coach. Each of the coaches getting yelled at by the parents for, you know, their kid not having played enough or, you know, not having been involved enough. Now they're getting the opposite from me. I'm like, yeah, I really... You know, whether or not any of my kids are going to be Olympic champions or, you know, professional athletes is irrelevant to me. How good of a character they have and what kind of an impact they make to the teams that they're on, how good of a teammate they are is much more important. And it starts with learning how to fail well. I think a lot of just the sports thing in general, I think a lot of people are thinking that if their kid does well in sports, they're going to get a scholarship or they're going to go pro and they're going to pay off all my debt. (laughs) <laughs> like, like there's this, this almost pipe dream that is almost fueling um, parents to live vicariously rather than to recognize that it, it truly isn't about winning. It's about the, the team learning what it means to be a team. It's about the team learning what it means to have character, you know, like that's, that's when my kids were never sporty. So we didn't really ever have a lot of that stuff when they were growing up. And I was never really sporty either, but, but I see it a lot, 
you know, and, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty bold statement to make. And, uh, did you tell your kids you made that statement? Oh yeah, I did. And they, every one of them was a little bit shocked by that, but then, then we get to the why mm -hmm. and it, it comes down to, and I, you know, if, if, if any of them chooses athletics as their, their thing of life, hundred percent supportive, but I want them to be a good athlete, mm -hmm. not in the sense of, you know, this much money or this many medals, but like, Still a person of character. Um, you know, we lived in St. In St. Louis. The uh, the greatest Cardinal of all time um, has most of the records, or did until recently. Stan usual, but he was the thing that really endeared him to the people of St. Louis was his character. And he was he was a, a from all that, that I can read about him and everything that I've ever learned about him. He was just a good man. Always had an extra baseball to give away or harmonica would sign autographs for anybody anywhere, never had that attitude of, don't you know who I am? Uh, I think he recognized, again, from everything that I've read, how blessed he was to be able to earn the living that he did playing a game for entertainment uh, of others and took that to heart. You know, and so that's the kind of thing that's much more important to me than record. It just so happens that he was also a talented person who set a bunch of records and that just made it even better. Uh, but there's plenty of examples of people who, have set the records and you'd never want to hang out with. And that's, we're, we're not looking to, to create that here with our brood. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up St. Louis. My dad grew up in St. Louis and uh, St. Louis when he was younger and Arnold just a little bit South when he, when he was older. And uh, so we always went out there to visit and I, I'm a lifelong Cardinals fan. And uh, actually one of my high school buddies, I live in Pennsylvania, and for whatever reason, he ended up playing for the Cardinals, pitched the year they won the series. And uh, so, yeah, I did just uh, my favorite baseball cap is a worn-out old red Cardinals hat that I don't dare wear anymore because it'll fall apart. So <laughs> I, I love it when we've got a <laughs> connection. That's so cool. Very – oh, my gosh. And tip of the hat to your friend uh, who made that uh, made it to the show and got a chance to play for the Redbirds. That's awesome. Yeah. Josh Kenny. I'm hoping to get him on the podcast one day and he said he would do it. And then I just haven't, I think he like stays off of social media and everything else. So me being able to connect with him has been a little difficult. I think I might send his wife a message and be like, Hey, let's get him on the show. Hard play. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's really how you get anything done is just ask the wife. So that's hundred percent of the time that's the case. That's right. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Cujo, I know that you've got uh, some books and some resources, and you do a lot of speaking, teaching people some of the stuff that we're talking about today. Uh, tell me a little bit more about about that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, in fact, part of the reason why it's taken us a, a little while to connect is just the fact that I'm on the road nonstop. Our team, and it's a growing team of ex-fighter pilots and now first uh, uh, first Army officer uh, that we're talking to, we're out there teaching these principles, the team leaders who care to grow teamwork, build leaders of character, and who want to create learning organizations that can that can move forward without fear uh, of, a, of a difficult tomorrow, who believe that the more difficult things are, the better the story gets, and, and embrace the mindset that says, we're, we're gonna achieve dominance no matter what. We do that by way of keynotes, workshop training, online certifications, online implementation programs. We've got the gamut 
of programs there to help organizations to be their best. And the feedback that we've gotten has been outstanding. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So uh, make sure that we also link to your stuff in our show notes so that if people want to connect with it, they can, because I, I think that what you're doing is good work. And uh, I, I think it's awesome, you know, just to, to take that, those lessons learned from something that, you know, most people just, they see, oh, the fighter pilots, they do their thing. You know, they fly airplanes and they shoot bad guys. And to recognize that it applies to everything is, is a pretty cool, pretty cool experience. It, and, and this is the part, and, and the idea occurred to me back in 2004 when I was a young teacher at the, at the fighter weapons school. Um, a dear friend of mine was lamenting the fact that the team that she was on just wasn't very fun any longer. And there were pockets of accountability. Like if you were, if you were part of the A team, you were good to go. And you know, not, nobody could bother you. If you were part of the B team, then you were being punished constantly. And that wasn't very fun. And, and I remember thinking in that moment, that's not what we're experiencing here. It's not what we're teaching. And I bet you we could teach how to do this someplace other than the Air Force. And we've, we've proven that concept. We've proven that it's right. And it's so rewarding to see a team come into their own, to, to, to watch them start to flourish and thrive. Um, and so that just, just the, the privilege of being able to go, go forth and, and to bring that forward, it is, it is, it's been so fulfilling. And everybody that's on our, on our team really appreciates it, wants to keep on going forth and doing it. That's awesome. So I have a few questions that I like to ask all my guests, and uh, I'd really like to hear your perspective on these. The first one is, what does it take to be a man? Uh, it depends on what kind of a man you want to be. And I would say that if you want to become a man of character, it might mean expanding your horizons and going against what it was that you were taught growing up. It's actually manly to be vulnerable. It's actually manly to be humble. It's actually manly to take ownership. And I think, I think what it really takes is modeling what it is that you seek from those who you're privileged to lead. I may have mentioned this before. I'll say it again. Uh, I think that's, that's an essential element, especially in the family domain, raising children. They're going to mimic us, and you want, you want them to mimic a good example. Excellent. Excellent uh, perspective on that, man. Next question is, you are somehow able to I, maybe fly that F-22 fast enough to... Hold on a second. My dog's going off now. Of course. <laughs> Let's give him a couple seconds. I think somebody might be coming home. He, mm -hmm. He's a big Shiloh Shepherd, and he's, you know, massive. And so what would be a little bark to everybody else sounds like a wolf howling at you because he's so big so that's right all right he settled down he saw that it was mom coming home so he's done okay okay we're good <laughs> okay let's say you're able to fly that f-22 fast enough to break the laws of physics and you can go back in time uh and you get the opportunity to talk to the 10 year old version of yourself what do you want to tell him hmm. um two things i'd say keep at it because even though everybody's going to tell you, you're, you're never going to achieve your dreams, you know in your heart of hearts you will, and actually it's true. Number two, uh, don't create an artificial divide between work and home life. Don't live a certain way at work and then live a different way at home. If, if, if you know how to team well at work, 
cross-apply that into the family domain and do that as soon as you can. The most important team that you're on is your family team. And so treat it as such, nurture it as such, grow it properly, apply those principles that you know work where they're needed most. And, uh, and you can't get started on that fast enough. That's what I'd say. Do you think that advice, uh, is that coming from a place of experience? Like, Hey, I, I messed this up, so don't mess it up. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a colorectal cancer survivor. Uh, the first time that I had symptoms that were, were worth investigating was back when I was bulletproof, you know, young combat veteran, new instructor at the weapons school, didn't have time to be sick, figured I could, I could power through and, and make myself better. Uh, never told a, a soul about those symptoms back when they were treatable. A decade later, when the symptoms came back, it was too late. And, and whose fault is that? And the irony is, is that the first time around, I was teaching teamwork principles. I was teaching how to communicate, how to learn constantly, how to build trust, how to do all of the things that allow us to be our best. But I didn't, it never occurred to me. And it wasn't that I was trying to, you know, live two lives. I mean, it sounds really like mysterious and and scary. No, I just, when I was done with work, I did home stuff differently. I think most people kind of do that, you know, like, yeah, you, you live different lives and you, and you kind of mesh into where you are in that moment. But the takeaway for me and the big learning opportunity from an epic disaster in my life was it didn't have to be that way. And we're going to use whatever time we have left in our family to build the strongest team that we can there because that's where it really matters. And then we'll go and teach it elsewhere. Wow. Well, congratulations on pushing through that, man, because that's a there's not a lot of people who can say they're a colorectal cancer survivor. That's right. So I'm I'm incredibly blessed. Yeah, definitely. Uh my next question for you, sir, is what is your best advice for the men that are listening to the podcast today? Yeah. Maybe it's this. Um it's very easy in our world to uh, to want to be judged by how much wealth we create, to want to be judged by how much stuff we have, to, to want to be judged by things. But I, I really think that it's important that we consider, especially, especially for blessed to have children, that our true legacy is who they become. And we have a huge role in shaping them. And so my advice would be, to really be intentional about leading them well, even if it means maybe not having as many successes on the business front or wherever else it is. Let's lead them well. Let's help grow young men and women of character who can make a positive impact on the world in which we live. I mean, we're, we're such a divided society here in the United States right now. Uh, there's very low empathy. You know, if you're not with me, you're against me kind of a thing. And that's not a recipe for success. And it might be very easy to perpetuate that. I think, I think young men and women of character who can find a way to communicate well with each other. We don't have to agree with each other in order to, to be friends kind of a thing. That's important for our future. And so that's where I would, my advice would be to try to grow that. Mm. Yeah, I've been pretty uh, impressed, actually, with some of the young people. That, you know, there's, a, there's a, some people that are not so impressive out there for sure. <laughs> But when I meet these kids that are coming up through through high school right now, 
and uh, they're not like the generation right ahead of them. You know, they're like, okay, let's, let's be sensible. So I, I think there are people that are already listening to that advice and, and it's the truth, dude. Like we all want to make big change and we forget that we're one generation, you know, that is almost on its way out. To be honest with you, we don't have a whole lot of time left to make a big change, mm-hmm. but we can teach our kids. We can teach our kids. Exactly. Hmm. That's really good advice, man. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. So again, if you want to, let's say we want to uh, have our listeners be able to connect with you. What is the best place for that to happen, man? Yeah. Two places, robertteschner.com, uh, last name T-E-S-C-H-N-E-R, or vmaxgroupllc.com, uh, VMAX Group being the company that I'm privileged to lead. And uh, they'll be in the show notes. Easy to easy to find us there. Easy to connect through there. Set up a call with Ava, and we're good to go. Awesome. We will definitely re- refer that in our show notes to the guys. If you want to connect and learn from what Robert's doing, make sure you check it out. Hey, it's been a privilege having you on the show, man. Today, thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for organizing this. Thanks for growing a a group of. Um, of people that are in t- intentional about improving themselves and, and how they do business. Uh, great to be here with you this evening. Cujo, <laughs> thanks for being on the Manlyhood Mancast with me today. Excellent advice for us all. And I can't wait to see how we can apply this and make our lives better, how we can become better leaders, better fathers, better men. So thank you very much for that. And if becoming a better leader, a better husband, a better father, a better man, is something that matters to you, please check out the Arrows and Iron Brotherhood. We'd love to have you be a part of it, guys. It's at manlyhood.com slash brotherhood. In the meantime, you can also level up as a man by building some connections and having some community. And you can do that in our private Facebook group, which is free for any man that wants to join. That's at the Manlyhood Man Cave. So if you go to Facebook and you type in Manlyhood Man Cave, you can enter the, the group from there. You'll have to join the group and answer a couple questions. And if you're a man, we will approve you. And uh, we'd love to have you there. But as always, guys, I just want you to know that I love you. I care about you. And I'll see you next time.